Endlessly on the trail of new products and new markets, companies will often consider joining forces with each other, sharing resources and know-how in the pursuit of innovation. But collaboration can be a risky business in itself, whether you're a fledgling tech startup or an established technology giant. What's to stop your knowledge from leaking to your rivals and competitors, for instance? Well, one man has studied these pitfalls and come up with four ways to stop knowledge leakage in R&D partnerships. He's Geoffrey Ryer, Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship and one of the senior research team here at Warwick Business School. On a Zoom line to Colorado, where he also holds the Guggenheim chair, he's been telling me what these four steps are. I began by asking him whether, at the outset of any R&D collaboration, there's ever any unspoken suspicion that the partnership may just benefit one side more than the other. Yeah, that's common. I mean, one situation when that happens is when like a large established firm would partner with a startup. So the startup is in kind of a precarious situation where it's often, you know, facing financial constraints. And, you know, in high tech settings, it's kind of one lawsuit away from really stumbling and having troubles. So that would be one scenario. Another kind of classic scenario would be if your firm and my firm are direct competitors it's really hard to align incentives at the outset and keep those incentives aligned because people kind of revert to this sort of zero-sum mentality. So for many companies, a helpful compromise, or indeed a built-in safety net, you might say, is for a partnership to take place between firms who aren't in direct competition. Microsoft and Toyota, you pointed out, working together on energy efficiency, say. Yeah, that's right. Sometimes it's unavoidable, but at least in the early days, you know, the vast majority of joint ventures, for instance, were between firms that were actually in different industries. Any other examples besides Microsoft and Toyota? Well, I think in general, you know, as industries converge, even defining, you know, direct competitors is is more challenging today. And I know both in Europe and in the US, that's presenting issues for, you know, like antitrust law, where you have, you know, networks and ecosystems and so on and how do you even define an industry for that matter but you know it's it's common to have uh, deals where you have like one firm's good at one thing one's good at another's or you know one firm has the technology one firm has access to the market so you think you know there's a famous joint venture between sony and rca where you know Sony provided you know technology and RCA had the, the content and that kind of emerged into one of the more famous uh, joint ventures. Now, before we look at the four ways you've suggested for reducing knowledge leakage, if I can run the risk of short-circuiting this discussion before it's even begun, couldn't you say, well, the lawyers will take care of all this, non-disclosure agreements and the like, just get the contracts watertight at the outset. Yeah, well, let me answer that by going back to what's the definition of an alliance. So there, there's no one definition out there, but the one that I use in my teaching is when there are uh, two or more independent organizations that actually work together, so it's not just a cash deal, they work together for some mutual benefit. And then the, the fifth element is it's under an incomplete contract. 
And that sounds maybe esoteric, but the, the point is, is it's really hard to identify every potential contingency, you know, how we're going to deal with those contingencies that might emerge. And so the purpose of alliance governance or, or design is really putting in place a whole bunch of mechanisms that would deal with those gaps in the contract. So that's a long way of saying that we sort of enter this saying, um, you know, there are gaps in contracts and the, the, the contracts are not airtight. Now, another factor in the whole area of knowledge leakage, you say, is location and firms operating in close proximity in clusters. Could you explain why that can make leakage more likely? Sure. So suppose my firm, you know, partners with yours and some of my direct competitors are nearby you. Well, there could be a a situation where either you would engage in a new partnership with them and the knowledge could leak that way, or this leakage could occur very informally, just, you know, your local school boards or there are professional networks and, and so on. So there's just more interaction, more localized networks. You know, th- this doesn't have to be a deliberate thing where one firm steals uh, information of another. It, c- it could just transfer in, a, in an accidental or, you know, in an inadvertent way. So that, I suppose, is one of the downsides of what you describe as the economies of agglomeration. That's right. Mm-hmm. A lot of the emphasis has been on the positive aspects of, you know, a lot of firms locating in a, what's called a cluster so they can access specialized labor, you know, people change positions back and forth um, between the companies. And then a lot of the, the partnerships that are formed are between firms that are co-located. So, you know, we're more aware of each other's technologies. We're, we're better able to evaluate them. We, we know what the prospects of the other firms are. So all of that enhances efficiency in markets. And that's a, that's a real positive. But then it can also lead to this, you know, dark side or this this other side of the coin where knowledge could leak out to other nearby firms. And again, perhaps staying with the dark side, or at least the human nature side, before we go into your research, does that lead to engineers, designers, IT specialists, coders, keeping stuff to themselves, not really being open about everything they know? Yeah, and it, it depends you know, a little bit on the context. So, you know, some states have tighter enforcement of, you know, non-compete agreements where it's harder for people to move. You know, in certain industries, patents offer stronger protection than in others. So there there are shades of gray, but I think in general, you know, what you said is right. And I suppose there's always the danger that your partner today may join forces with a rival tomorrow or be acquired by one. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, if, if suppose your partner is acquired by another firm, one question would then would be, will your relationship survive? Or for that matter, if my firm goes out and acquires another firm, which of their partnerships that I'm inheriting, so to speak, will continue on? There's no obligation that they, they do so. So they might be renegotiated or many of them might be redundant and you know come to an end at that point. And the knowledge that's leaked, of course, may not be hard technical stuff or product-related material, but might be something like, as you've written, company strategy, benchmarking data, mergers and acquisitions, contractual details and so on. 
Right. Soft information, market information, right? Mm -hmm. The full gamut. And it's kind of obvious, but what are the dangers in that? I think the simple way to think about is, you know, any returns from the collaboration that you're anticipating, you know, are discounted or, or, you know, that eats into future profits or other opportunities that you could pursue based on, you know, the technological or other resources that your firm has. And you also mentioned venture capitalists. Could you explain where they fit into the knowledge leakage picture? I myself haven't done work on this, um, but one challenge that exists is suppose, for instance, your company is backed by a venture capitalist. And then down the road, I either take a minority equity stake in your firm or maybe a corporate venture capitalist does. Well, you have the new venture, you've got the traditional venture capitalists, and you have the CVC firm or the other investor, all of whom can have different interests in terms of you know time horizon, whether we care about the standalone health of that new venture or you know, what's going on in the product market if the CVC is competing with that new venture. So again, I haven't studied this myself, but I know that in those financial agreements, there can be certain covenants that would say, you know, over these classes of decisions, we have to have a unanimous vote or in effect that amounts to like veto rights to protect that new venture from the you know, influence of that CVC firm or other company that's on its board. Now, on the evidence of what you've been saying so far, um, a CEO listing might conclude collaboration is too risky an option. An acquisition might be a better one. Yeah, and th- that's one of the themes in my teaching is, you know, a lot of times will people invoke a study that says, well, 40% or 60% or, you know, some large percentage of alliances fail. And that's not reason enough to avoid them. I mean, the failure rates for M&A or internal uh, corporate venturing or, you know, other initiatives are also high. So I, I really try to push people to think comparatively then to say, well, when should I partner and, you know, when should I acquire? So for instance, you know, based on your point, if I really understand, you know, a, a target firm, and I'm not worried about, say, post-merger integration problems, then acquisition is a really great option. And that would allow me more control over technology and knowledge. But if I want to kind of test the waters and maybe I'm worried about cultural integration problems, an alliance could be a lot more attractive instead. So let's come to your study of over 6,000 R&D alliances, which led to the four ways in which you can best protect yourself against knowledge leakage. We'll look at those ways one by one in a moment. But first, tell me something of the methodology of your study. What were the kinds of companies you studied and what broad issues emerged? Maybe what's most helpful is to take a little bit of a step back because this is part of a bigger program and just describe what we're trying to do. So for years, the way academics thought about partnerships was basically there are two types. There's what's called a non-equity agreement, which is a contract and an equity alliance. An example there would be a joint venture where two firms set up a, a brand new business and own it together. So The question then is, well, what do I get out of a joint venture that I can't get in the case of a non-equity alliance? And basically, it would boil down to two things. I get more control because there's a board of directors there. And second, I get incentive alignment because we both have ownership over that unit. Now, 
why do I mention that? Because that's such a broad brush way to think about these deals. And so in the study that you're referring to, we're getting into the details of boards and who's on those boards and, you know, what privileges do they have? And we can talk more broadly too about like, how can you design uh, contracts or these non-equity partnerships to protect against knowledge leakage concerns or other issues that crop up. So what I'm doing is in all these different studies, I'm, I'm drilling down into these very detailed mechanisms to you know, design, administer, and govern these deals. And so the, the general research approach is we have thousands and thousands of contracts. These are all in biopharmaceuticals industry. And what I'm doing with my students is we basically do large scale analysis of these to try to detect patterns. And then we can provide guidance to managers as to, you know, how to set these things up differently under different circumstances. But one of the things that motivated all this work was I was a professor at Purdue and we were just down the street from Eli Lilly. And I got a, a sense of just how much innovation there was really and how firms are designing these deals. So one, one statistic that might be interesting is 90% of alliances in biotech now are non-equity. And you might ask the question, they're like, well, why, if these are so complex and there are all these hazards involved, why would you just use a contract and not all those supports of you know, a joint venture or a, an equity agreement? And the answer is you know, they've been able to really innovate how they govern and set up these deals. So at a high level, you know, that's kind of the research strategy. And, you know, the study that you mentioned is just one amongst, I don't know, 10 or so that we've done. Okay, so on now to the four ways you highlighted to reduce knowledge leakage. And to some degree, you've covered the first one already in that last answer, Equity Alliance. But could you go into a bit more detail about its inherent advantages? One would be there's actually a board of directors in place with authority to um, handle anything that's not specified in the contract. And then the other would be just, you know, both firms have skin in the game. They both have equity ownership. So they, they, they tend to, you know, look after the, the interests of the business because of that joint ownership sharing. So I have kind of two streams of work in the study that you mentioned. We looked at like, well, when, do, when does an investor have a seat on the board and if so, when does it have you know, observational versus voting rights? And then I have a, a number of uh, studies using surveys looking at how to set up boards in the case of a joint venture. And, and we could talk in more detail about that. But the Equity Alliance might give you muscle, as it were, and voting rights on the board. But it won't stop the actual leak of information, will it? Well, you know, some of it might be about what what can we do once we detect a problem and do we have kind of the, the muscle to use that term you know once we see something's going wrong these oversight bodies like a board would also be able to like allocate resources and it has decision making power as to how teams are structured you know who's involved you know the resources that are committed so there could also be some you know, prevention steps, but you're, you're right that the leakage, you know, doesn't happen at the board level. It happens between the employees that are working together on the projects lower down. We've looked there at the first of your four ways to stop leakage. The second is described under the heading limiting the scope. Could you just unpack that a bit more? 
Yeah. So imagine that two firms form a partnership and it's very, very narrow on something they can specify. Maybe it's a co-promotion agreement or maybe Sam outsourcing some limited manufacturing activity uh, to your company. In those situations, the contract can be very tight and there might be a clear relationship where you do X, you give it to me and then I do Y. So you can really specify who does what. So in the case of a broad scope alliance, maybe we're involved in you know, manufacturing and marketing and distribution, R&D and all these activities. And not only are there likely to be gaps in the contract because it's hard to specify you know, our rights, our obligations, who does what, but there's much more back and forth between our firms. So it's harder to control um, the interactions and the knowledge flows then. So, you know, one thing that we might do is if say your firm and my firm has never worked together, they haven't worked together in the past. What we could do is say, okay, we could still go for a contractual alliance, a non-equity alliance, but let's do something on a very, very limited basis. And, and we have a tight contract for that activity. Because as you say, some partnerships go beyond R&D into areas like manufacturing and marketing. And the more areas there are, the greater the chance of knowledge leakage. That's right. In which case, isn't it better to go further than limit the scope generally and say, limit the scope specifically to R&D? Simple as that. That's right. So the, the more narrow the agreement, two things happen. One is fewer uncontrolled interactions by people throughout the two organizations. And and then second, you can just write a tighter contract. And and also there's like less downside risk in terms of, you know, the financial commitments as well. Because don't the contracts that have to be drawn up have the tendency to become dizzyingly complex with the potential to spend lots of time and money on lawyers? Yeah. One of the things that's surprising or maybe interesting in our study is you might think that firms also, you know, you could imagine a couple dynamics. One would be firms kind of have a boilerplate or a kind of a a fairly standard contract they use across deals, or that as you and I collaborate and we have, you know, more and more deals together, we tend to add (laughs) rather than subtract. But one thing that we found in all our work is that it's amazing how much customization there is. So if you take, say, a Pfizer, Lilly, or you know another firm, and you look at a few of their contracts, they're incredibly customized or tailored to the needs of that particular deal. Right, let's move on to step number three, reduce task interdependence. This is related to what we were just talking about. So take two scenarios. In the first scenario, you do your thing, you throw it over the wall, and I do my thing. In the second scenario, there's kind of chaotic back and forth, you know, on a day-to-day basis for us to do a task. The point would be, if there's an opportunity to structure the work between people in that sort of sequential way, you can better specify the inputs and outputs and, and control knowledge, where if, again, if it's reciprocal, it's called, or there's this kind of um, need for this back and forth there's a greater risk of, you know, not only, you know, coordination 
costs and problems, but the knowledge leaking out in that second case. But isn't interdependence inherent in the very nature of partnership? And if you're going to be independent, you've not got much of a collaboration to speak of. So why bother with the partnership in the first place? Yeah, at the, at the limit. And I guess what I'd also say is, you know, it might not be possible just given the nature of the work to, in a sense, pull this lever. But what I'm trying to do in the research is say, well, maybe there, there are like 20 levers. This is just one. And if, if that's not possible, then you can use some of these other solutions. But again, back to where I started, unfortunately, where the field has been, this more macro level of should I do equity versus non-equity? And, and what I want to do is get into the 20 or 30 you know, on-off switches that collaborators can use. And so if it's not feasible to use this one, you can use some other mechanism. And another mechanism might be your fourth suggestion, steering committees. How do they work? I've got a good example of this to share with you that I think might be surprising. Imagine that you and I have a non-equity alliance or a purely contractual alliance. I've just pulled a summary out of an alliance that involves a, a pharma company called Cubist. And I'll, I'll just read it here. It's kind of a mouthful, but uh, the steering committee is basically to do the following. So manage and oversee the development and promotion of the product in a certain territory, review and make recommendations for revisions to any material amendments to the promotion plan, review the progress of the development committee and the marketing committee, resolve disputes, disagreements, and deadlocks, and then review any development activities following FDA approval. So the idea here is that even though this is a, a contract, basically what the parties are doing is they're establishing almost like a quasi board of directors when a company doesn't exist. So they basically allocate authority or delegate authority via the contract to this committee so that as things pop up, as there are surprises, as there are problems, that committee can deal with those problems. And then one of the things that we've looked at in our more recent studies is imagine there's a deadlock that emerges at that committee. What they might say in the contracts is they might say, if there's a you know, dispute or that can't be resolved related to marketing, then firm A's CEO gets to make the final call. If there's a dispute related to, you know, say the technology or something or R&D program, then, you know, the other firm gets to make the final call. So, so the way to think about this is they're trying to build in kind of like a board of directors to coordinate, to handle disputes. And hopefully that keeps those problems from going into, you know, arbitration or litigation. So each partner can have the casting vote, as it were, at certain key stages in the process. Yep, that's right. Mm-hmm. That's one form of governance mechanism. Are there others? So there's a whole host of them. I've been surprised at how even in fairly simple like logistics outsourcing contracts, how there's just maybe a score of provisions related to termination. And there's been a lot more um, innovation there. One thing I've, I've been interested in is you'll see that they really elaborate upon how disputes are handled. So for instance, they might say, well, if the dispute relates to this topic, then we'll go to arbitration. If it relates to this one, we'll go to the joint steering committee first and then mediation and then litigation. So it's almost like what they're doing is they're kind of devising a path for how these disputes will be handled but that path is tailored to the nature of the, the problem that might crop up. 
So it's, it's incredibly tailored and sophisticated there. So all this sort of formalizes the information sharing with relevant safeguards at committee level. But, and it's a big but, people talk over coffee, over a beer, watching the game, at dinner parties and seminars. And there's no protection against that, is there? Yeah, that's right. I think I'd, you know, you had asked the question of, you know, is this all worth the hassle and should we just do an acquisition instead? And I think I'd answer this the same way to say, well, you know, the standard isn't perfection because all of this is costly. It's really about saying compared to what alternative, that alternative might be acquisition, that alternative might be, you know, in some industries, hiring people directly rather than partnering with those companies. But we always have to think about this in this kind of comparative way and, and weigh those, those costs that you mentioned. Now, I'm not sure this is relevant, but I'm just wondering whether the cautionary tale here is Xerox and its Palo Alto Research Center, where some of the center's groundbreaking innovations, the keyboard, the tablet, the mouse, were never fully developed by Xerox, but mysteriously resurfaced in Apple products. Yeah, that's a good example. And again, I'm in doing these studies in biopharmaceutical industry. So it's a little bit different in terms of the protection, you know, that patents offer for sure. But, you know, in general, firms are moving towards these more open models of innovation, you know, trying to, you know, help startups develop and collaborate at a very early stage. And I think your point's well taken. And ending now where we began with the human factor, um, do both sides go into these partnerships with a measure of suspicion, even paranoia? Or do they embark on the yellow brick road, as it were, wide-eyed and full of optimism? I think there's a real mix. You know, one thing, you know, that we could end with is that a lot of these partnerships last only two to five years. And of those, about 40% of them are renegotiated during that time frame. So I think the clear-eyed way to think about this is, you know, these don't have to last forever and we have to be prepared to adapt and build trust. And going back to, you know, what you mentioned about personal issues, this is a situation where people have a lot of responsibility without authority. And those are kind of all unique to the situation of partnerships and the nature of the beast if you want to pursue this way to grow inorganically and create some value. Do you think that given the circumstances of the moment, let's remember we're in the autumn of 2020, when we're in this pandemic together, I mean, do you think from this shared hardship there will emerge a greater sense of the need to collaborate? Yeah, and I, th- I think maybe public-private par- partnerships in particular. I mean, some of the oldest JVs were in the oil industry where, you know, they just had huge, huge capital requirements and you had to partner to share risks. But I think, you know, alliances are used when there's changes in industry boundaries and a lot of uncertainty. And I think that applies really well today. And finally, the question you've already asked yourself, are partnerships worth it in the end? I think so, for sure. And again, I try in my research and my teaching, again, not to push what we might call universalistic thinking. So not that something's good or bad, but try to think about, well, when should I partner versus do something else? When should I use an equity alliance versus not? When and how should I set up the steering committee in this way? Or if I think about three or four different ways to set up boards, under what conditions does it pay 
So in, in management research, we sometimes use also this term called equifinality, which means there are three or four ways to get to the same end goal. We're not trying to look for some rules to riches or say, you know, this is always good or this is always bad. But following your rules might be a reasonable place to start. Jeff, thank you. Jeff Ryer, Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship, talking to me, Trevor Barnes, for this Core Insights podcast.